This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We found an interesting story out of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Listen to this. A minimum security prisoner escaped from a halfway house in Alaska and then after getting away decided to come back three hours later, uh, but not to turn himself in. State troopers say 20-year-old Joshua Yaska returned with an SUV and tried to help other inmates flee the facility in Fairbanks. Staff members say uh, Yaska was spotted leaving on a bike just after 1 a.m. Sunday, and the trooper said he returned about 4.20 a.m. By the way, somehow found an SUV. Just apparently somebody had left it for him, donated it, and tried to aid in the escape of other inmates. Authorities say he tried to uh, strike uh, a halfway house employee with the vehicle. And anyway, they, they caught up with him that night after he broke into a relative's home. Now, we're trying to, as we were talking about the story with our team, we decided, you know, sometimes when you make a plan, it sounds better. Like it, it, it seems like it's better in your head then it really gets rolled out, you know, as you're as you're trying to break everyone out of the prison. And we, we thought that uh, when it comes down to it, that he he probably thought it was going to be more like a Braveheart moment. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take yeah, see, see, he thought it was going to be like that, this Braveheart moment where he just he would motivate them and they were all pumped up. and They're like, yes. And then they storm out of the building. Uh, it actually ended up sounding more like this. And then he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it sounds a lot better. Like you are free, man. And it's more like, I. We're coming to get you. Yeah. It always looks better when you when when you're thinking it through. Hey, you guys, I'm breaking you out. That's the problem with being a criminal today. You got to think it through and yet you may not have the capacity to think it through. Hmm? See? This is why you got to be careful, kids. It's uh it's never it's never going to be pretty. Um, as we talk on the show so many times um, and, and get into life, it's, it's always harder than we think it's going to be. I mean, think about it. When in your life has it ever just been easy? Like, ah, holy cow, life is so easy. Because if, if the minute you're thinking, man, life is easy, it seems like you're setting yourself up for something big to happen. Have you ever felt like that? The minute you start to think, boy, this is a cakewalk, or the minute you think that school, for example, is just, oh, it's so, boy, I am loving what I'm doing, then all of a sudden something weird will happen. And it might even be good, like a promotion. Now all of a sudden you get a promotion. So no longer do you just get to be you know, a great salesperson. You now get to manage eight other salespeople. Which is so great because, right, it's more money. And then you start hearing them tell the stories about how their car didn't work, so they missed the appointment, and then it didn't. Ah. 
If there's anything I've learned in life, just give it time. If it's too easy, it'll get harder. If it's too hard, give it time because guess why? It'll get easier. The great benefit of life um, and, and things that we think are easy, things that we think are hard, just give it time. Because in the end, it'll get, it'll get better. It always does. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was once a president of uh, the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church that uh, runs BYU, owns BYU. And one of um, his great uh, quotes that he's, he's so known, known for is um, simply keep trying, be believing, be happy, don't get discouraged. Things will work out. Be happy. Keep at it. Keep believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. So if you've ever doubted, folks, take a big, deep breath. Things will work out. Just give it a few more days. Don't give up. Just get busy. Get working on it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Life is good. And we sit here, we get so caught up in the news from like Orlando and the political news. But meanwhile, there's just a family from Arlington that's running a site and uh, for 3D printing of prosthetic hands, right? And they're not, again, they're, they're not bionic. They're not, sometimes the plastic doesn't work. They're, they're strung together and made functional by, you know, strong fishing line, Um so they're not perfect, but what they've created is a community, and it, I really feel like it's it's the model. It, it is the model of of charity. We've seen it uh, on the show. We try to bring you a lot of these people so that you can see the good that's going on out there. But this world's going to be changed by by groups of people, by communities of people. It's no longer going to be done by one person. So we we spend all of this this time on Trump and on Clinton, and yet the world's going to be changed by more people like the Owens that we just heard from. Uh, Margaret Mead has a great quote that says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So you're a part of that community, and um, everybody's got something to offer, again, the community is more valuable than probably um, some of the things that we we might hope to have happen. I mean, I would love this charity, uh, enablingthefuture.org, to be able to move much faster than it is, for example, um, to you know improve the lives of thousands or millions of people if possible. But really, in a way, that the community has to go at the community's pace. It has to go at a, at their speed, um, and the benefit of it going at that speed is that eventually that uh, community will be able to sustain itself and grow itself, and it will grow so organically that it will probably have a better impact on life and on um, on its purpose, on its goal. When we think about all this technology and and the how it enables us, how it takes us to a completely different level. What what are you doing with it personally? Um, 
it, it's, it can be to your advantage. It can be to your disadvantage. And we always have on the show the people that come and talk to us about technology and how it's, we end up wasting our time and how we might be able to take better advantage of it. But simply finding a community. We also talk about the fact that a lot of our, uh, us feel like we're being, you know, we're becoming more and more solo uh, creatures because of technology. It's not actually broadening my circle. It's making me, you know, be impacted by what others are doing. And then I pull away and are, you know, depressed because I don't have a boat because <laughs> I just looked at my friend's Facebook page and he just took his kids out on a boat and I don't even have a boat. Um, the reality is, though, again, it's this is another example from enablingthefuture.org that you can go belong to a, a bigger community. So imagine that you're just – imagine you're uh, an engineer and you've always loved putting, you know, the the furniture together from Ikea. And that always has been exciting for you. But you hardly you, – you're you've bought all the furniture you need. Where can I use my talents? Um, maybe you have kids that are no longer in scouts so you can't build the Pinewood Derby car for them anymore, <laughs> as many fathers are known to do. So what you might be able to do with some of your great skills is to reach out and find a community. We're all members of a greater community, right? And if we could find a way to go take our talents, our gifts, and hook into an organization like enablingthefuture.org, it's a chance to give back to the world. It's a chance to serve. It's a chance to then use your gifts, your talents, the things that are unique to you. I'm not an engineer, so if I became a part of this community, I would probably just be a cheerleader on the side, uh, maybe a fundraiser, but I wouldn't be one that's that's innovating the device or the, the 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 design. But that's not my role. But there are designers that would be great there. So don't get down. Don't get discouraged when it comes to all of this technology, when it comes to um, what you can offer the world, because... Really, what you can offer the world is just you. And if we can find ways to to get into these types of situations or create some of them out of BYU, we've seen some pretty amazing stories, including uh, the design of wheelchairs um, that were just made out of PVC pipe um, that are incredible for people. There's just no end to the, the needs of the world and your gifts and your abilities. So don't just sit back and think you're done because you're retired. Don't sit and think that, you know, because you're a stay-at-home parent that, that you know, that's, that's enough maybe. Maybe what you could do is if you're still being called to go innovate, if you're still being called to use your talents, your gifts, you know, your degrees, go find a charity. Go find some community to be a part of. It could be your church community. It could be giving back to your school community on the PTA. There's so many ways that this world needs you. And maybe that is the fastest way to create a better world. It's it's probably not through political you know drive, and it's probably not going to happen through just a business endeavor. Um, don't ever look away from the idea that it might just simply be giving back, serving, and being a member of a community. Powerful, powerful things create uh, these these wonderfully powerful charities. But the, the thing that's probably most important is a person that cares, a person with a heart that wants to belong and wants to do what they can. And that, I believe, is you, my friends. So we'll take a break, come back, uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we have uh, a wonderful guest, friend of the show, Dr. Frank J. Ninavaji, um, who is an associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut. He, um, he has been on the show many times with us to talk about uh, child psych- psychiatric issues and how, how really to motivate, how to connect to our kids at a different level. Today, we've asked him to talk about an article that he wrote called Life. Horse race, rat race, or an amazing adventure. It's basically 40 years of practice. He's been, he's been uh, practicing for 40 years, and I just want his insight. What does a psychiatrist think, and what has he learned over 40 years about life? Is it a horse race, a rat race, or an amazing adventure? Dr. Ninavaji, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you again for having me. Privilege and always an honor. I know. I love having you on. I learned so much. And uh, I thought this topic is so perfect as well because you've seen it all, I'm sure. Well, a lot. Yeah. Talk to me um, about, uh, you know, what, your reflections. What, what, when you think of life, what is it? Well, uh, a big and important question. I can only approximate uh, in uh, the little time we have some ideas, some, some hints. Life is amazing. Life is complex. Life ultimately is really a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. For me, it is exactly what I kind of um, say in that essay. It's an amazing adventure. But in all my experience from the beginning to right now, most people and I am a child, adolescent, adult psychiatrist. Um, I'm a clinical psychiatrist, a clinical caregiver. So I see people of all different ages from, I used to see three-year-olds, five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and now mostly I see adolescents and young adults. <clears throat> and they all sort of labor under this um, anxiety and dysphoria feeling that they're in a a rat race, Mm. a sort of endless pursuit. They question the meaning of who they are, what life is all about. It's a sort of never-ending cycle of demands and work. Or they feel it's a kind of a horse race type of a thing, competitive demands put on them to hurry up, to excel, to win, to do better, to achieve, always um, looking for or actually experiencing that there is no meaning. That's the sort of subliminal, subliminal communication. There is no meaning. It's just a frenzied activity which is sort of mindless, mm. sort of autopilot thing that they're doing. Now, Truthfully, I've never played a video game in my life. Really? And I, never. Frank. That is, <laughs> and I am frank about it because that's my name. <laughs> that's and that's crazy. my M.O. I have never played a video game. I don't have an interest in it. I have an interest in people. Hmm. I work with people. That's my, if you want to say game, game in the sense of interactive adventure. But... When I view people every day on the street, in stores, 
even if I'm driving in the car, and we all have this experience, uh, people are playing on their telephones, their mm -hmm. iPhones. They're looking down. Uh, they're playing games. They're listening. They're always doing something almost in an autopilot fashion. They're sort of themselves like living robotic devices. So that led me to think about the whole thing, not just emotionally to feel about it, but to think, you know, I've got to write about this. And that led me to write about, this, write about it in this paper, mm. Life, Horse Race, Rat Race, or Amazing, amazing Adventure. And, I mean, these are young, these are adolescents, these are teens, these are younger um, people, and they, the idea that they're hopeless, that, like, life has no purpose, life has no meaning, is that... Is finding meaning something we hand to people? Do we hand people meaning or do people discover their own meaning? And are these people that just because of anxiety or depression or mental health issues can't find their meaning? Yeah. Well, you know, when you were saying that, I got the image, the feeling meaning is kind of like food. Do we hand children do we hand children food and expect that that's all there is, that that's the nourishment? Food is sort of a means. We present the opportunity, the food. We expect that at a certain point, the, the, the infant, the child, etc., is going to be able to put that food in its own mouth, chew the food, swallow the food, and then that child, that individual system, will take on physiologic processes of uh, digestion, assimilation. It's all sort of in a passive theologic way. Now, meaning is, and you know, my big thing is biomental. Right. A human being is biomental. At one point, I had used the expression biopsychospiritual. But then in writing the book, psychologically, I emphasized biomental so that the uh, medical psychological community could understand my position and accept it. Hmm. That's phase one. Yeah. Uh, You'll right. get spiritual in later. Uh, well, I put that in the book on Ayurveda. That was my very first okay. book. Okay. Because that's included in the Eastern traditions. Right. It's assumed that that's real. No, no one has to prove it. They live that. Right. So, but <clears throat> that's, as they say, another part of the real world. Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking about the Western part of the real world. So, um, <clears throat> the biomental, now, meaning is more the mental part, the psychological part. And the psychological means intellectual and emotional and actually, that's what I'm really working on now, a new book on emotions. And meaning is really very, very, very emotional. A meaning starts out with emotion and only later on becomes intellectualized. But it's a combination of both. It can't be split or divided. <clears throat> so it's integral to a human being. 
but meaning has to be sort of created. One has to create meaning for oneself. We can present others with opportunities. That's the food, right? That's the food. And then the other has to take that in and then work with it in a sort of adventurous way and then kind of, through motivation, self-advocacy, self-leadership, kind of put it, piece it together according to that individual's temperament, personality, curiosity. I'm going to use a big word. I love this word. The epistemophilia of the self, the epistemophilic instinct, that drive that we all have to understand, to know, to grasp, to discover. And that means to discover ourselves, our own personal reality, which really is not like an egocentric reality. It's the reality of ourselves as human beings, members of humanity, our common humanity, which we all share. Hmm. But the old expression, charity begins at home, we have to start with ourselves. Nobody can give us freedom. We have to learn to become free and then share that with others. Is it the, um, this idea of rat race you, it's almost like we get so sucked into it yes. that we're not present in it. And it's kind of oh. like you're just being tossed around the river. Um, is that a key then to this is somehow figuring out how – I mean to make it an adventure, you actually almost seem to have to want to be in the river or at least make the best of the river and be present in the river. I don't think we have a choice. We are present in the world. And I think I use that expression in this uh, paper. Yeah. Uh, being in the world, but not of the world. We have no choice but to be here. Yeah. We're alive. We're, we're in here. No man, no woman is an island. We are all part of the whole. But that doesn't mean we're mud. Right. It, <laughs> mud, dirt, earth is living. It's a living biosphere. There's life. There's quote-unquote, intelligence here. Yeah. It's for us to discover that we are part and parcel of it. That's As cool. a matter of fact, in that very first book, uh, Ayurveda, I coined another phrase, which I believe I coined, a term to convey this idea, eco-corporeality, that we are part, our whole body, soul, spirit, mind is part of the corpus of the real world we exist in. Hmm. We're not separate. We're born from the dust, from the earth. We are still the earth right. and the dust, but more. We are it, but more. Yeah. So, we, we, you know, I'm kind of what's called a, sort of a monist in philosophy. <laughs> Monism. M-O-N-I-S-M, not like you're moaning. No, but, no, right. but but mono right. meaning mono. Not, not M O A N. Yeah, M O N. Yeah, right, right. A oneist. A, a That's great. Uh, yeah, like a, a unifier. You're a. You see the wholeness. Things as all connected, all connected, not a blur, 
but all connected with a monumental diversity and facets hmm. of difference, all needing to be recognized for what they are and respected. Yeah. And I guess that's – we'll take a break, Frank, but we'll come back. But that is, I guess, what differentiates it being a rat race, a horse race, something that you're yeah. just – it's all about competition. It's it's divisive. It's me against my neighbor versus That's holistic, it. figuring right. out a way to make it through together. Yes. That's cool. The split makes envy, superior, yeah. inferior, the haves and the have-nots, and then the envy, which generates greed and jealousy and all those things that are called negative, mm. negative emotions. The split makes envy. That's cool. Uh, and how to be a unifier. Stick with us, folks. More with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Um, and we're going to continue this, uh, this journey, figuring out how to be less divisive, how to be more unifying, how to see the whole world at uh, your fingertips, which would definitely make it more of an, ama- an amazing adventure. Stick with us. More when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Dr. Frank J. Ninavaji. Uh, he is an associate attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital and assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. He also uh, writes for Psychology Today, has many, many, many articles articles there, and also books published um, that you, you just you, you got to learn more about Frank Ninavaji. We love having him on the show to pick his brain. He's a child psychiatrist and adolescent psychiatrist and clinically practices. So he's, you know, he's not just in a classroom teaching. He's there face to face with his patients. And uh, today he's teaching us about life. And uh, is it a horse race, rat race, or an amazing adventure? You can get the entire article if you just go to Psychology Today and look up Life Horse Race. Um, you'll get right to it. I'm sure that's an easy way to get to it. Dr. Ninavaji, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks. You bet. Keep teaching us. You uh, Before the break, you were talking about the fact that when we when we don't see life as a whole, like a, you're calling it monis, monism? Monism. Monism. Yeah, monism. Um, then when we don't see life as a whole and every part of our life is part of this whole, then we, we, we might start dichotomizing. We might start breaking things off and splitting things. Splitting. I mean, that's usually, it's always easier to concentrate on the the darker part or the negative in a way only to make the whiter, the uh, more positive, clearer clearer and more distinct. So um, the whole or unity is, is most real because that's where it's at. But uh, rather than talk about monism or unity or integrity, sometimes it's, um, it's a better learning experience, and the mind finds it easier to see what's wrong hmm. uh, and think of it in terms of splitting. 
or when you say you use the word divisiveness, mm-hmm. you know they say on a field of uh, white, it's easier to see one or two black spots than all the white and take note of all the white. Hmm. You know, when someone does 99 right things and one wrong thing, you always pick out the wrong thing. <laughs> now, is that, that just seems like survival, right? If, if, if there's white and two black things, yeah, I only need to worry about the negatives. I mean, right. to not die. We, be, sometimes we do that so that um, we can see what's quote-unquote wrong and then try to correct it. But ordinarily, because uh, humans tend to have punitive consciences, uh, we tend to negativize the negative and punish and persecute. And rather than view it as a learning opportunity or a problem to solve, to uh, make things even better than they are, to improve, we do the opposite. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? But, and and so I guess the way it is, right? that is, it is what it is, but that, then that perpetuates the rat race. That perpetuates the rat race and what you, the word you used earlier on, uh, hopelessness, which uh, tends to ge- generate helplessness. Mm. I can't, I can't, I can't. When in point of fact, we can, we can, we can, if we have the necessary motivation and sense of enthusiasm. Yeah. You know, not unrealistic, but a sense of enthusiasm, positivism. Purpose. Sense of purpose, because purpose means there is meaning. But we have to generate and create the meaning, the meaningfulness, the salience in life. Is this then what you meant by we, we kind of have to be in the world, but not of the world, not follow its traditional downward spiral down the drain? That's right. Not uh, Swim not, upward. Not um, blindly conventional. Yeah. And not just assume... That everything that goes on, just because 99% of the people are doing what they're doing, that it's all the way to do it. Yeah. You know, we all have to kind of conform to society and civilization and culture, because that's what we are as human beings. We're, quote-unquote, civilized and social, you know, the social perspective, but... When that's done in a highly passive way, it kind of turns into cow-like. It turns into us becoming blind and simply following in in a mindless way the group, the crowd, without really thinking about us as individuals who make up the the group or the collective. Hmm. And... Because it seems like uh, you could also be a leader that could lead others to a better life as well. I mean, if if, if people are going to be blindly following, then this isn't really a race at all. You just got to be present, figure out your purpose, and and make a plan. It seems like, and it, everyone will either follow you, or you know, you'll pretty much go get what you need. That's the whole. That's like. A- that's what I say parenting's about, nurturance, discipline, and living example. Hmm. Living example. And I'm beginning to think that living example 
is like one of the primaries, living example, living example, not just example, but living, breathing example. Hmm. It's, and you're saying that might be that might be one of the primary jobs of the parent. Then is the living example. In living example is nurturance, is love, yeah, and is discipline. Everything is in there, but a lot of times we want to kind of split things apart to make them intellectually a little bit more understandable. So we break it up into subdivisions. And, you know, love always has to be emphasized because um, it really is the unifier. Yeah. And I, I, I'm a big proponent of love. Agape, yeah. love. Uh, caritas, love. Uh, kindness, love. A lot of people, and many times, now I'm working on this book on emotions, and it's not even considered an emotion, a primary emotion. Hold on, love isn't? Right. They, they use the word happiness. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy is right. Who's they? Who's boy, they? Oh, girl, oh, man, <laughs> oh, woman. They don't use the word. Who's they, Frank? Just the researchers. They are the, the psychologists, the researchers, the neuroscientists. Well, what do they psychology. call a mother holding a brand new baby? They call it nurturance, attachment behavior. Oh, wow. They, they, I mean, they, they rip out yeah. the emotional salience. As a matter of fact, and I don't want to name names, but they live right where I live here. They go, to, so they, they're at Yale. They're, they're a researcher at Yale. Okay. I don't want to name names. <laughs> we won't name names. But when they talk about, and these are the, these are, what do they call the thought leaders? <clears throat> when they talk about emotion, <clears throat> um, they leave out what I believe is the heart and soul, emotion, emotional sensation the visceral experience of emotion. And that's what I'm trying to put on the map now in my new book, hmm. that that is number one. That is what love is, the launch pad of emotion, of, of love. And it comes first. And you don't need cognition to have it because it's part of what is agreed upon as present at birth, temperament, that the scientists will agree probably is a present in the newborn temperament. Hmm. They will agree more or less tongue-in-cheek temperament, and that there are a few subclassifications of temperament. <clears throat> and I am connecting uh, visceral emotion with uh, temperament and fundamental in infancy, and in infancy we know that a well-developed intellect and cognition is not fully present, but emotion is present, and emotion is what causes survival. Yeah, so what, emotion's like the baseline driver of survival. Exactly, and that's, that was one of my articles about a year ago, uh, emotions as a second language, or should it be our first? That's interesting. Yeah, right, it, right. it is I your we, it's your first you, language. You asked me to be on the show about no, I don't know nine months ago, yeah, and yeah. we talked about that. I remember. And I love that. That was the the uh, the seed for me to um, generate this book. Mm -hmm. Emotions as a second language, or should they be our first? 
Yeah. Ooh. I know. It's powerful. So is um, – and you sense that that's – okay, so let me just ask you this. Then we got to go, Frank. But, okay, so connect for me spiritual and that first language emotional. I really do believe that probably in terms of human psychology from a, a human humanist point of view, from yeah. a psychological point of view – Emotions probably are the touchstone or the cryptographic key to the spiritual world. Hmm. That's probably how we can get really, 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 really spiritual. Yeah. The threshold. All religions hit on emotions rather than intellect. Right. The religions that sort of want to stress intellect don't seem to be so spiritually savvy. The religions, and, and religions usually are highly emotional. Yeah. And when, when it really presses and plays the music of your heart emotionally, uh, even the images in the old days, what, what 2,000 years ago, uh, the Orthodox religions used to have icons. Rather than that being like blasphemous images, they merely were kind of like springboards yeah. to evoke emotions. They weren't uh, images of uh, divine entities. They were images of emotional attitudes. Yeah, senses, sensations. Senses, that's what they yeah. were. That's all they were. Nothing more. Yeah. And Ooh. then you closed your eyes and then you had what what is called communion. Uh-huh. People receive communion, close your eyes for communion. Yeah, that is cool. And then, which is why, I mean, like hymns, people that love hymns, it's speaking to their emotions. That's right. It's the, the melody. The mm-hmm. melody, the sound, music is even more spiritual than reading and language. It's emotional, yeah. very emotional. Man. These tones, yeah. This is, okay, when's this book coming out? <laughs> Get on it, Frank, come on. <clears throat> I'm trying. I bet I'm you are. I'm trying. I know you are. You work a lot. Um, okay, we we got to let you go, but everybody go uh, go look up Frank Ninavaji, N-I-N-I-V-A-G-G-I. He's got books, uh, wonderful writings on psychology today. And what's great is he, he doesn't write like a one-page article. He writes in depth so you can go research and find these quotes and find these ideas um, and just and follow the line of reasoning. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, we appreciate you. Uh, We'll have you right back. We got to get. We got to keep learning. Thank you so much. You bet. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. You, so you too. Much. And learn so much uh, as always. Uh, honestly, folks, something powerful, right? Emotion connecting. If if you're living a life and you're not connecting it down to that emotional level, and if the or if the emotions just the negative emotion of the horse race, the rat race, it's gonna it's gonna sap you. It will take life away from you. We've got to connect somehow to that higher purpose in each of us. That's why we do this show, to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. Come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, I love Dr. Frank. He really, I'm telling you. Now, maybe it's just heady, but we are divisive beings. We can be in the world, not of the world. And then he taught us what that means as a psychiatrist on the faculty at Yale's School of Medicine. Pretty cool stuff. Talk about um, emotions. Uh, Terry found a story. This has got to be the most terrifying emotional moment of someone's life. So imagine you're asleep. Oh, yeah. Every 4.30 in the morning. Okay. No, just, not us, but normal people. Nap. Normal people yeah. asleep at 4.30 in the morning. You're on a family fishing trip in the Australia's northern territories. Mm-hmm. Right? You're yeah. just, you're out there. You're having some fun. You're, right. you're you know, sleeping. You're not really, you know, you're asleep. All of a sudden, something grabs your foot. You're like, honey. And drags you out of the tent. Oh, boy. That's not my wife. 19-year-old was sleeping in his tent. The uh, crocodile grabbed his foot, oh, pulled wow. him out of the tent. He goes, I, he goes I, w- I woke up. There was something shaking my foot. It was 10 to 13 feet long. Uh, they're saying the man's very lucky and managed to kick it away with his other foot. A health department spokesman tells the Guardian, adding that he's shaken but in stable condition at a local hospital what? with puncture wounds on his lower right leg. The staff and management of BYU Radio do not condone the housing and boarding of alligators or any other illegally acquired reptiles in any private domicile. Wow. wow. We have situational disclaimers now. That's amazing. So the guy's asleep, and they're saying a guy from one of the universities, a researcher there, said that the, uh, the, the, uh, the guy was sleeping too close to the water's edge. Yeah. They recommend being uh, 165 feet away from the, the water when you go to sleep. Or how about just up in your, you know, camper? Yeah. So, he was too close to the water. The crocodile got hungry. Went went for a late night snack. That guy is la uh 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 key. But you know, wait that that would be a a great way to wake up. I think. Yeah. No. At first, you're like, honey, playing footsie with me, and then, <laughs> but then he ran, and that he must have been in the tent, running in the tent. Who didn't? Wasn't he in a tent? The guy was in a tent, but maybe his feet were hanging out of an open door. Or oh, something. that's stupid. Yeah. Because I was wondering, how does the alligator know where his feet are? I guess heat? Smell. It's feet. Come on. No, but if he's in a tent. You smell like chicken. You're human. Have you you ever smelled a tent? (laughs) Yes, I have. They're gross. It's very hard to smell. So the crocodile yanks him out, and that's how he woke up that morning. He is one lucky He's probably still awake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That guy's (laughs) never going to sleep again. Wow. So consider yourself lucky, folks. See, it could be worse. Your life could be a lot worse. Is it a rat race? No. It's a flipping alligator ready to just rip you out of bed in the morning we'll take a break folks stick with us next hour more fun of course more tools we'll be right back this is the matt townsend show your guide on the side follow dr matt on twitter at dr matt show call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU this is the matt townsend show dr matt townsend now on byu radio byu radio well we just heard some some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking and there's something inherent and i think essential uh, as all of us the, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking but what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you, if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up. 
and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled, and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens, because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you, once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at, they might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I, I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. <sighs> Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved— then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the th- thoughts you have, And then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. 
Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. We, you know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging, and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got. Uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships, to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world and, and I think that's true except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Uh cuz most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. 
So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. And it seems like the middle America kind of blue collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie. Some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, This is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right, to what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy. And – Maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't – it doesn't – seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like 5% maybe, 10% of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck – we need some tough love, and the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it, and I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff, and they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are – benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay. So there's there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay. He's just had it. 
He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. He, so he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. He'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, they're a little swear word there, Uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Apple recently released some new products with features. Among those uh, were a new iPad Pro and a new iPhone. These products come with uh, many, you know, new gadgets, one of which is a new lighting technology called Night Shift. Night Shift changes the lighting on the phone to produce less blue light so as to help users go to sleep easier. But uh, will it really work Is blue light really that big of a problem? And did Apple in their, you know, their new advancement just solve the age supposedly old problem of the blue light that emanates off of our little uh, devices keeping us awake? We'll find out. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, Associate Professor and Assistant Dean for Curriculum and Assessment at Illinois College of Optometry. He joins us now live from Illinois. Dr. Goodfellow, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. Great to have you here. Hey, what do you think? Uh, talk to us about light and blue light. I don't, I don't quite get uh, the full spectrum of light and, and its impact on us. And I guess we need to know that to figure this out about uh, Apple's new device. 
Well, light is, uh, you know, daylight and the sun is has long been um, an indicator for all of us, um, even before the age of having clocks and, and things like that. Um, when the sun comes up, our, it tells our body it's time to wake up and get ready for the day. And when it gets dark outside, it also kind of tells us that it's time to uh, to go to sleep and get rested for the next day. And so, um, you know, the, the natural cycle of sunlight is, is something that kind of uh, is kind of built into um, you know the way our our bodies work and so the, the whole idea of circadian rhythms which is kind of you know the body has a clock that kind of um, is important to kind of uh, keep on a schedule and and we know whether it's whether we fly in an airplane and have jet lag or we stay up too late working on a project or things like that but anytime we disrupt that cycle or that that rhythm um, you know things kind of get out of whack we don't feel as well we're more prone to get sick um, you know the, the, we're just not really designed to, to just be a awake all the time. So it's important to kind of keep that cycle and rhythm. And so light certainly plays an important role on that. Um, you know, there's still a lot that's really not not known about, you know, how all of that uh, works. But we know that it's um, the wavelengths of, of light that come at us that um, enter our eyes and give us, uh, gives our brain some feedback about uh, about when we, we need to get up and when we go to sleep. Because mm. we have, uh, you know, we have blue light, I guess, it's it's glowing off of our iPhones and our iPads and our television screens, and um, but we also have LED lights. And I guess these the impact of these I, we're having more and more uh, blue light in in kind of just our day to day purchases and in our day to day lives. Is that true than than ever before? That that is certainly true. And so. Um, you know, researchers have found that, you know, when we, we think about how the sun kind of keeps us regulated, that, you know, sunlight is made up of um, all the colors of the rainbow, as as we kind of remember from our, our elementary school days. Um, and um, in addition to infrared light as well as ultraviolet light, all of those uh, forms of, of the electromagnetic spectrum are coming at us from the sun. But researchers have really identified that it's kind of that blue area of the spectrum, that blue or purple, right? up against um, before it becomes ultraviolet rays, that that blue light is kind of the one that it does the regulation for us. And that's mm. kind of what triggers us to, to um, go, you know, go to bed and wake up uh, on, on a schedule. And, you know, for the longest time, our main source of blue light was really from, from the sun. And um, the, you know, even the light indoor electric light bulbs um, that have, you know, powered our country for a long time, they had kind of a yellowish cast to them. You know, the old incandescent, old-fashioned light right. bulb, it was more kind of the warm colors, kind of the, the, the yellowish. And so blue light was not really included in the, in the, the spectrum of light that was coming off of these older type of, of lights. And so that's kind of why they have mm. a yellowish hue to them. So being exposed to, to that type of light doesn't kind of trigger the mechanism in our brain to kind of stay awake. Um, but you're right. All of the, the new devices, the LED lights, the compact fluorescent lights, um, a lot of the more modern lighting now is more kind of the cool white lighting. It has more kind of a, it resembles more of the sunshine, you know, the, the kind of that white uh, mm -hmm. or that cooler uh, color. But because, you know, what makes that have more of a white or a cooler color and not be as yellow as the old-fashioned light bulbs is that they're including more blue 
in the spectrum of, of what those lights emit. And so we are kind of being bombarded all day long with, um, with blue lights in our offices, blue lights um, in LEDs, um, and blue lights in all these um, devices that we stare at all day long and, you know, staring at our, our phone even right before we go to sleep. All of those, those blue lights are kind of sending signals to our brain to, hey, it's day. We should stay up late, uh, keep working kind of a feeling. Hmm. Is it um, – it's, it's so funny. I went – and they're incentivizing people you know, to buy these LED lights because they're more they're, – uh, they're, they're friendlier to the environment. So I went and bought a bunch of them not necessarily knowing that there's kind of the warmer light. I mean I knew it but I didn't – I couldn't discern while I was at the store. And I bought a bunch of the bluer uh, LED bulbs um, and you know, put them in our upstairs and then at night it looked like – I don't know. It kind of looked like a landing strip um, <laughs> or like a marijuana grow site um, in my upstairs because it's such a different light. And I real, I noticed just in my own energy, um, you know, I feel better in a warmer light than just these bright blue lights is that what is it doing to me? Yeah, I mean, I think – I mean, for one, you know, there's not a lot of research, you know, out there to show, you know, the long-term effects of these type of lights. And so, you know, lighting is kind of a subtle difference. I guess I don't want to paint the picture that, oh, my goodness, you got to get those out of your house. These are very yeah, right. dangerous or things like that. But you're right. There are kind of these subtle, um, you know, one, sometimes it could just even be a subjective preference of just – you know, the, the way that your room feels, you know, we know that color in general um, changes the way that we see the world. And, um, you know, and, you know, the, the lighting is a very important choice um, that certainly designers talk about, um, you know, the type of lighting that they put in, in grocery stores or in museums is chosen for a very specific reason uh, right. to highlight what's there and to make people feel a certain way. And so um, you're right if, um, you know, the, the choices of lighting that you have at home can really kind of change the way you see the world and kind of feel. And sometimes it almost can be, you know, walk into a room, it's almost too bright or just kind of just you know, overstimulating sometimes and sometimes kind of a, a warmer um, light can be a little bit more comforting, um, mm. especially at nighttime. You know, one of the things about LED lights is they are just so powerfully bright and, um, you know, you know, the, the, unless you have things on a dimmer or things like that, the, the amount of light that we need, um, especially later in the day, um, you know, needs to, is is often less. Even when you're using, you know, your computer screen, for example, you know, during the day when it's pretty light outside, you might need to have that screen very bright so that it shows up in contrast to the rest of the world. But at night, that same screen brightness would just seem way overpowering, and so you have to kind of uh, bring down the the uh, illumination a little bit to right. make, uh, feel comfortable. And and thus, uh, the topic here. Um, so. Night Shift was then created, I guess, or engineered by Apple's team so that these new devices and all of our iPhones, iPads, they now have the ability, I guess, to remove the blue light and and make it a more yellow light. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, essentially they're basically just um, adding an algorithm to their screen um, output to kind of remove or turn off the pixels 
that are emitting more of the blue spectrum. And the idea is is that if if it's the blue spectrum, which artificially causes people to um, you know, their brains to kind of experience daylight and awake feelings, if they turn off those pixels, um, it would allow people to, to use their device closer to bedtime um, without necessarily having the overstimulation of, 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 you know, being awake. So the idea is, is that, um, you know, hopefully people can turn off their device and get to sleep in, in a better way. Yeah. I mean, you're the optometrist and uh, or a professor, and um, I'm thinking that um, all we'd have to really do is just shut our eyes. <laughs> you're right, <laughs> and and uh, and and just you know, our eyes are really not designed to be staring at computers or even books, paper books, um, for you know all this time. You know, our eyes, the default focus of our eyes is really for far away viewing and uh, you know so you know our eyes are meant to kind of zoom in and focus a little bit on something up close and then kind of go back to their default focus mm. of looking far away so um, you know when we kind of lock our focus up close when we read or we use a computer or hold an, uh, an iPad or a smartphone up to our eyes for just many many hours you know that alone causes a lot of strain it really you know whether there's blue light there or not um, is not necessarily the 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 magic answer but you're very right just you know giving your eyes a break oftentimes can be um, helpful <laughs> go to and, sleep and making, yeah go to sleep you know it's uh and you know and and some of the re- the researchers are also not clear about you know what you know what you do before bedtime um, does impact a lot on how quickly you can fall asleep you know whether you exercise too much or you have too much caffeine or whether you know you you've uh, you're excited about something and so there's some research to say you know what using a smartphone um, before bed is just stimulating your mind and keeps you kind of active maybe it's not so much the blue light that's keeping you right. awake it's just the idea of just being kind of stimulated before bed which you know, if you're not using your phone, if you're kind of in quiet meditation or you're just kind of kind of, you know, preparing mentally for the, the next day and kind of ramping down, um, that that might be the key to, to having a better night's sleep so much than, than the blue light itself. Yeah. I mean, Jeffrey, when I grew up, you know, it was about counting sheep. <laughs> right? And now we're like playing some bejeweled game. Right. Exactly. It's messed up. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, who is a uh, an associate professor and assistant dean for curriculum and assessment at Illinois College of Optometry. He's walking us through uh, what I'm calling the blue light special. You can also find it at Kmart. And um, what we are talking about, though, is this uh, blue light, the impact that it has on us. And Apple's device, Night Shift, does it really take care of that? When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We're also going to talk about eye strain. The reality is we're straining to see stuff. More and more people are um, it's, uh, are having their vision impacted by all this screen time, as, as the good doctor was just telling us. We're going to just learn the tools, the information you need to uh, use your phones and your new technology in a healthier way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Go. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love that song. Hmm. Yeah, bright, blue light, sunshiny day. Welcome back, folks. Today we are talking about blue light and uh, not the blue light that you saw at Kmart when you get a discount, but the blue light that is on your phone, your iPads. It's everywhere, folks. And in fact, uh, Apple has created what they're calling night shift, where you set a little timer and at whatever time, sundown, boom, you you uh, they remove the blue light spectrum, I guess, uh, from the phone and you have a different like, I guess, more yellow light that uh, supposedly would impact your sleep less, your melatonin levels less. And, you know, we wanted to see if, are they, is this for real? So we've been asking and talking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, who is an associate professor and assistant dean at uh, the uh, Illinois College of Optometry. He joins us now from Illinois. Welcome back, Dr. Goodfellow. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Talk about the um, uh, the. I guess the strain is a big deal, right? Because I w- I've always wondered what these phones are doing to us. Um, because we're we like you were saying, we have this this phone a foot from our head, our face. We're focusing at a level, and it's staying there for hours with light, probably that we're not used to. And it's is it impacting us? What does it do to our eyes? Well, there does seem to um, be information that suggests that, you know, all of these um, near devices may be taking a toll on our eyes. You know, there's um, the long-term toll is kind of difficult to determine. Uh, I'll start with the short-term. And I think um, there is lots of information to show that um, eye strain is definitely something that is um, common, as well as dry eye, irritable eyes, headaches, those type of things, which definitely come from us using our eyes in an up-close environment for just extended periods of time. Um, and as we had mentioned before, you know, our, our eyes are really designed, um, you know, out of the gate to be looking far away. And so um, we have uh, the ability inside of our, our eyes for our lens to kind of change its shape. And there's a little muscle in the eye which can kind of um, change the focus of the lens to allow us to see up close. Right. It's really designed to just do that briefly and then kind of go back to looking far away. So when we kind of lock our focus in up close, um, it definitely can cause all kinds of, uh, you know, um, you know, problems. And I think the other thing, too, is is that, um, you know, all of our eyes are different, and some people have um, eyes that may not be perfectly aligned, or they may have, a, you know, a f- one eye may not focus as well as the other, or there may be other underlying things that under normal circumstances, um, you know, the person's able to compensate for those and be fine. But when you put their eyes under intense strain by looking at a computer all day or reading a book for, you know, five hours without taking a break, all those kind of things, um, it may, those little problems can start to become a big deal and Mm. people may start to to notice, um, you know, problems with headaches and uncomfortable vision. But I guess we're, we are newer to the blue light than we are, I guess, the UV light, uh, right? I mean, because the UV light, that that does cause other issues like cataracts, and I guess we don't know what the blue light does yet. Uh, that's a fair statement. I think um, researchers have, have long known that ultraviolet um, light, um, it, it can be damaging to all um, body tissues, and certainly um, we're all well informed about wearing sunscreen on a, on a sunny day, and, and um, as... Um, 
eye care professionals, everybody has been, you know, told for many, many years now, wear sunglasses outside. You need to protect your eyes because, um, you know, the front of your eyes can get sunburned just like any other structure of the eye. And um, you're right, the inside of the eye, the cataracts of, um, that can happen to the, the lens inside the eye, um, as well as, you know, more serious things like macular degeneration mm. and some real um, serious problems that, you know, after many, many years of exposure to ultraviolet light, um, that damage kind of builds up cumulatively over time. And, you know, um, we have some of our elderly patients that end up with a lot of these um you know, pretty, you know, serious, you know, eye problems that causes them to lose vision and, and kind of function in life. Um, so, you know, we we are often told about, you know, protect your eyes from from UV radiation um, to protect those things. But more recently, um, you know, blue light has now also been implicated in kind of causing some of those things as well. And and if you think about the the, the whole spectrum of uh, you know, UV light gradually blends into purple and blue light, which gradually, you know, blends into, you know, the the, the green, orange, and yellow, and the reds, and gradually fades into infrared. It's a, it is a, a a spectrum, and mm. it's a slow change from one. If you can imagine, even the rainbow is not just pure red, and then a clear bright right. switches to orange. It's a fading, and so, you know. Ultraviolet, which we know is damaging, um, is right up against kind of these blue and purple lights, and so there isn't, you know, a, a real line in the sand where this is the the um, you know the yeah. cutoff of where light is, you know, where radiation is damaging, and light right next to it is perfectly safe and healthy. It's a slow change, and so like a lot of things in life, um, you know, everything kind of in moderation. In that, um, some of these blue um, lights, al- although they're not as dangerous as as some of the ultraviolet spectrum, because they're up against the short wavelengths of of UV light, they also now have been implicated in having some some properties that, in the long term can kind of damage our eyes over time. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow um, about uh, about the blue light that's coming off of your phones, your iPads. And uh, I mean, it's it's really, it's, it's everywhere anyway, but now we're actually just pushing it into our faces from about a foot away. Uh, Dr. Goodfellow, let me ask you this, because I've noticed that when I am around people that are on their phone, uh, and I want you to tell me if there's a correlation. Um, a lot of these people seem to become antisocial. They become incredibly boring people that don't talk to you and just look at their screen. Does anything? Does any of that have anything to do with the light? Probably not. Okay. Darn it. <laughs> Probably not. I, w- I wish I could, uh, even for my own kids and all the, the students that I get to work with, I think our <laughs> yeah. entire society has really uh, been easily distracted. For I, sure. It's like making zombies. It seems like this light generates – it's the zombie apocalypse. It's the way the zombie gets into us. Yeah. Well, and I mean, when we kind of laugh, and, and although I can say that it probably has nothing to do with, with your eyes, I mean, there is kind of a long-term – cumulative effect socially on I think our culture and our society right. um, when when uh, young people are trained from a very early age to be intently um, engaged in their device and I think that there is some literature out there to show that you know some of our younger people are not maybe uh, as adept at communicating um, with one another as they once were from all these different things that's the key too because we're not we don't have long-term research right we've only been doing this for a decade or so. And um, 
I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see what really happens there. Talk to us about some solutions. What are things that I should be doing uh, to make sure that uh, my eyes are protected, that I'm not, you know, you know, losing my nearsightedness or my farsightedness? What what are the precautions we should take? Well, probably the the first thing is is just to be um, smart in the way that you use your eyes. Um, so certainly. Um, you know, when you are um, reading and doing things up close, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I need I use a computer all day in, at my work. Um, I certainly have a smartphone in my pocket, which gets me around town, and, and I spend a lot of time on that as well. But the, probably the more important thing is is just uh, you know, the American Optometric Association has what they call the 20-20-20 rule, which is, you know, Every 20 minutes when you're working on a computer or smartphone, give your eyes a 20-second break by looking at something 20 feet away. In other words, just these periodic breaks where you return your eyes kind of to their default focus far away is just enough to kind of give them a break, relax those muscles in the eye, and then after that, you're kind of ready and refreshed again to to have another 20 minutes of work. So just, you know, just periodic breaks and go a long way into kind of reducing a lot of the eye strain and some of the things that go on. Um, the other thing is is to to blink your eyes frequently when you're using when you're reading when you're using a computer, smartphone, iPad, those type of things. Um, we know, um, you know, the research data has shown that you know our our normal blink rate that we just our eyes automatically blink without us thinking about it decreases um, considerably when we when we stare at a near device <laughs> and we hold our eyes open longer and yeah. so uh, because of that they um, are more prone to getting dried out strained so even just being conscious about blinking your eyes frequently and whether it's you know at the end of every line or uh, certain paragraphs, things like that, you just kind of blink frequently. That can also help too. And then I think probably, you know, most important after that is just protecting your eyes. So making sure that um, you wear sunglasses outside, making sure that you wear sports glasses or eye protection when you're playing sports or, or doing anything, working out in the garage and, and things like that to protect your eyes. And then probably the last thing, would be um, to make sure that you you get a regular eye exam um, at least once a year to just um, make sure your eyes are healthy, uh, make sure that they can see well, make sure the eyes are well aligned, make sure that the pressure in the eyes is okay, make sure the vision is good. Um, there are so many things, um, like anything with the body, if there's a problem, you want to know about it early um, rather than it, before it becomes a problem that's difficult to fix. And so um, regular eye care also goes a long way to kind of make making sure your eyes are in uh, tip-top shape. Yeah. Uh, great advice. Uh, let's do one more question because I can hear somebody out there saying, why are you picking on technology? So <laughs> so help me with this one, doctor, and just you, you can make it as easy or as hard as you'd like. Um, when it comes to the sun, we shouldn't stare into the sun, right? For sure. Okay. Ba- bad for our eyes. Bad, bad. Okay, so we've covered the spectrum. Uh, Don't look at technology too long. Use all of these other techniques. Like that blinking thing makes sense, right? People aren't Mm -hmm. blinking as much, yet you're taking in all this light. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Like it seems counterintuitive. It seems like you would naturally blink more, but 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 we don't. And protect the eyes. Look kind of at a mid-range area. These are great, great tools for all of us. Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, thank you so much for your insight and – your insight, no pun intended, but we appreciate it, and we are going to uh, take your advice to heart. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Have a great day, Matt. Take care. Again, Dr. Jeffrey Goodfellow, and uh, he's he's the real deal, folks. When you 
think about it. You're not blinking, but you're looking looking and staring at something, and your brain's like, yeah, let's let's blink less. That's why they're drying out. If your eyes crack and you know make weird noises when you blink, you need to blink more. You need some more fluid in there. We'll take a break, folks. Some advice from the other doctor, the non-optometrist, ophthalmologist. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I go get my eyes checked every two years. And here's the crazy thing. I go and, you know, they do the test, that awkward moment where you're like, A or B, B, A, A, B, B, A, A, B. And I always get nervous about that. But um, then there's this moment where they give you the glasses and you are like, holy cow, things are sharp. I got my first pair of glasses about a year ago. Yeah. And my depth perception was so messed up that I was tripping over everything. Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was embarrassing. Yeah, it wasn't here, so. Ben, don't deny. Um, So doesn't it make sense that you should value yourself enough to go have your eyes checked? Right? We go to the doctor. You're supposed to get a checkup, I guess, annually or whatever. Uh, when you're at my age, <laughs> and uh, we should we should do that, but you should also get your eyes checked and wear protective lenses, wear sunglasses when you're out there, um, outside, and yet we don't. And it might just be because we don't. I guess we don't value ourselves enough. But as a family now. That uh, with my parents, my extended family suffering from macular degeneration, from cataracts and um, and uh, glaucoma and other eye issues, it's a scary, scary thing. You lose your eyes. Can you imagine not being able to see or only being able to see out of the corner of your eye? So you're always kind of looking to the corner. Oh, that's hard. Um, that's a hard way to live. And... Not to mention the fact that people are going to be totally freaked out by you sometimes when you're always looking out of the corner of your eye. It's hard stuff. And so let's let's just learn just information, right? And value yourself. Value yourself enough to uh, take care of yourself. Now, here's a story of a man not, I guess, valuing himself enough. Um, what is the worth of a soul? Depends what soul. Oh, Ben. No, it doesn't. Everyone's soul is in, is is has no value. It's 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 priceless. Depends on the soul. It depends. Um, police say a Kentucky man lied about being kidnapped, and then he demanded a ransom from his relatives. So he pretended to be kidnapped, demanded a ransom, and the r- sad truth is the ransom was one hundred and fifty dollars. So. We've got your son. We've got him. We will kill him unless you pay a ransom. Oh, boy. Really? How much do you want for little for little Austin? We want $150. 
<laughs> Is that all? Yeah, just $150. That's a little too much. And a bag of Oreos. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have $150. Let me check my purse. Hang on a sec. Leroy, do you have $150 so that they don't kill Austin? No, let him kill him. Austin M. Kaler's family members told police the 20-year-old told them he was being held prisoner. Police said they tracked down Kaler to a house, and he tried to run before admitting to the hoax. Kaler told police that the ransom had to be delivered by a certain time or he would be killed, and that he planned to use the ransom money to buy drugs, the police said. 150 bucks. Let me just give you a, a little advice out there. We call this segment Coaching the Con. Um, if you're going to claim ransom, you might want to value yourself more than 150 bucks. Well, just to lead off suspicion, yeah, it's like pricing things. If you price it too low, right. it's, you're going to be suspicious right. of the product, right? Yeah. So what you might also want to do if you really want to get it done is do what the pros do. Give them a range. Give them three choices. For 500 bucks, we will return him without a problem. For 150 bucks, no hands. We'll return him handless. 50 bucks. We'll give you his shoe. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll give you his wallet back so that you can do what you got to do. Anyway, interesting. People, the worth of a soul is great. Definitely more than 150 bucks. We'll take a break. This uh, is the Matt Townsend Show. More tools, more information to help you get through this crazy thing called life and do it with a smile. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues. And then it just and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show. A lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have... Do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions, and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day, and basically the story goes like this. She, um, they were signing up, they went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time, uh, like a timeshare meeting, right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one, whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world, and then you can go and and go to all of those great areas. 
so this couple is there just enjoying basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple – the husband had been married before, so it's a second marriage for him. And, um, you know, they've had tension a long time. Uh, they've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into, like, the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name, and then he puts his – ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay, so what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there, right? That is now, that is the, this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it. Which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he he realized what he had done, and he kind of froze. He hadn't looked at her, his wife yet, but he immediately had his own reaction, like, ah, oh, jeez, I'm dead. I'm dead. Hope she didn't see that. And then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's his second wife's name on. Okay, but that moment created this situation that then eventually, because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment, it turned into about two or three days of not talking, one day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant, and all, um, and they they fought and fought and fought and then actually made an appointment to come see me while they were still on their vacation, and then they got in. So when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues, that's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion, or lower their partner's emotion, it became an emotional, you know, Roller coaster and quite honestly, an emotional explosion. So, I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships, it's if you don't manage your own emotion, you're setting yourself up because the pain, no matter what, is going to be yours. Well, yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him, but if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay, right? Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions. Because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not ride it, you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just, you you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name. Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for, I don't know, how many years? Uh, Eight, nine years, he was married to one woman. And he's instead got two hours with, or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, Maybe. 
But you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment. You're, remember, emotions are there to teach you. They're there to help you. They're there to guide you. The reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment. It, we weren't, we didn't, the, the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because this was catastrophic. It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, it's, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion. And one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is you know, find your, your best self. So that our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another, another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation – but I asked them very quite simply, um, if if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one of you if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick, and it is scary. It's scary for them. The fear is the woman's afraid that she might. She might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right. But it was out of fear she responded. And then his fear about how she responds created an issue. But all of a sudden, if we could get present and be our best self, which we tend to be when someone's sick, we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles. Things tend to work better for us. So think about it. Think about your relationships. And don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not be so fearful, trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self. That essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, Emotional Management 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. 
But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues. We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, So many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the, you know, they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really ought to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you. Um, they already know that these kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried. And by the way, anxious about their child who probably has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through uh, their anxiety. And there's just, there's a lot of great research. And by the way, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually when you're anxious, your your body starts to uh, because of the, the the hormones and what's happening. Your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast, right? So a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I think I was talking about something else, but uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example, Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing. Just a deep cleansing breath, a deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness. It'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you, you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink, they'll, you know, do marijuana, but they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal, but the the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety. It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because you're probably going to have less anxiety, right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share an oath to. Uh, Think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. 
And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, An activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it, but could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk? or however often that it works out for both of you. Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. If I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing. Instead of writing on a new line every time, write write on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out. It gets the energy out, the emotion out without ever – without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data. Instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world, start using a, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because it, you know, we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance – Offer to serve others. And as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter. Dopamine starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there. Or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, our interviews, the really the best method of picking who is most qualified for the job, 
For most of us, the prospect of a, you know, a job interview can be intimidating and even a bit overwhelming. What if our resume doesn't reflect experience or what if our personality simply doesn't click with the person who's interviewing us? In order to nail a job, you must nail an interview. And Dr. Anna Hartley, an expert on personality, judgment and measurement, joins us this morning to share a little bit about her experiences with interviewing uh, for a job and what happened when she found that she had the wrong personality for the job. Thanks uh, for being with us today. Dr. Anna Hartley, thanks. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. And uh, and talking about this, talk about your uh, the, the way you came to discuss this topic of the wrong personality. It was actually in a job interview, wasn't it? So I had a job interview for a certain position at a company. I can't say what company, but... Um, yeah, they they uh, gave me a structured personality interview where they asked me questions about my personality. Wow. Just one by one, they just started. But you're a personality expert. I mean, your expertise is in studying personality and, I guess, social social psychology. Yes. Yeah, I literally wrote my dissertation on personality assessment, so it's kind of an <laughs> interesting experience. How wild personality screening. <laughs> and, and so you you've just gone to some uh, job interview, which even how you describe how they how they kind of got you to get to the interview. It wasn't a real personal experience anyway. No. Yeah, I got I got kind of an automated email that said, call this toll free number to set up your interview. So wow. that, as you can see, it was off to a great start right there. <laughs> I really felt warm. It felt warm and welcoming. And then they sat down with you and started uh, going through a personality kind of interview. Talk about how that works. What is what is that? I mean, I've heard of behavioral interviewing, but what is personality interviewing like? <clears throat> Structured interview, which meant that the interviewer had to ask specific questions, and I could only answer in certain ways. So I could only answer yes or no or um, of a certain option, um, as she indicated. So, for example... She said, are you a responsible person? And I would either be able to answer yes or no, but I couldn't answer anything in between. Wow. And what is the goal here? I guess this is to actually see if you have the right personality that they need for this job. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about it. I think it's partly that, and I think it's partly to see how you do in these kind of intense, structured interview formats where you kind of have to – it's almost a forced choice format where you have to choose between two options, which aren't great. So, for example, one of the things that asked me was, are you the most responsible person you know? Um, and I couldn't, you know, I had to answer um, uh, yes or no. And that can, you know, that's like kind of a murky question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what if you don't know anybody? <laughs> then I guess you are by default. <laughs> Nailed it. That's an easy one. <laughs> And I guess, are they sitting there on their laptop uh, then typing in each answer? It, it was a phone interview, so I assume so. I mean, I heard her typing in the background, so yeah, I think so. How interesting. And I guess at the end of this, um, what happened? I guess you were you were advised that you had the wrong personality for the job? <laughs> well, she asked, me a series, she asked me a whole series of questions, which were all kind of increasingly frustrating as it went on. Like, are you perfect? And then um, she told me at the end, of the end of the interview that they would get back to me in three to five business days, which in and of itself is kind of hilarious, just three to five business days. <laughs> um, 
And then I got an email, just an automated email, saying that um, I wasn't a good fit for the job, uh, that I did not pass their personality screening. But you were more than qualified, more than able, educated enough. You had the skills, the tools to do the job. You just were rejected by personality. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, that was the funny thing. They actually never asked me about my qualifications for the job. Oh, they didn't? But they apparently knew of you because they basically headhunted you. Um, well, they had my resume. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Now, so um, is this, do you do you know, is this a fairly normal practice now in interviewing? Um, I've never had a personality interview quite like that. Um, I think all of these interviews get at your personality in various ways. I mean, I've definitely taken personality questionnaires for interviews before, um, just on the computer or on paper. But I think the other, you know, the other really popular way you mentioned before is behavioral interviewing, yeah. which... And that's asking about your personality in specific contexts as revealed through your behavior. And I think that might be a better way of getting at one's personality in that, a less obvious way. Yeah, that's one where they'll say, give me an example of where you had to go against what your boss was saying or something. Absolutely. And then, then exactly. they, they want to see how you behave and uh, how you explain your behavior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, one of the themes of my research and some of the research coming out of personality is that it's much better revealed um, by what you do in specific situations rather than just asking something about somebody <laughs> about their personality traits. Yeah. Well, it's almost like they're, they're and it's a little, I don't know. It, um, it's almost like deceptive in a way. It's, it's like putting you on a lie detector <laughs> instead of just, <laughs> instead of just letting you, express and if if they're forcing you into these yes or no kind of questions it seems like it would be better to to let people just talk and their personality would come out their behavior would come out it just seems like it's a better device to understand someone yeah yeah i agree i mean or just let them watch the bachelor and then just watch how they react <laughs> you know what i mean that would work too that sounds like a good personality. There. <laughs> Talk about um, personality just in your in the job. I mean, it's a funny thing because we we tend to not know. We hire these people, they come in, and then the next thing we know, they drive us crazy. <laughs> and personality is a hard thing, really, to to peg, isn't it? And we we might get skills, we get the resume, but it's the personality that might be the hardest thing to work with. Absolutely, yeah. And I think looking at people's behavior and context, you learn so much about them. Like, you know, what does somebody do in the most difficult social situations? What do they do in the most benign, friendly social situations? And that's, I think, when personality is best revealed. That's why, I mean, I think it makes sense that these companies are shifting towards behavioral interviewing so they can really get a read on that. Yeah. Is it let me ask you this, can you train personality or is it is it the is it what we're born with? Um, I think we are I mean part of personality is certainly genetic, you know, in terms of our temperament, but um but no, I mean like personality changes over time and they used to think that personality was set like plaster. That's what everybody said, set like plaster um after age thirty. But now we're finding that Personality changes throughout your lifespan, and it changes in response to situations and the situations you encounter. I mean, like the situations you're going to encounter are going to change as well. So 
I think you can certainly change your personality, especially if you can identify how you're behaving in the most problematic situations. Yeah. And is it, uh, yeah, because you, you could start to see if, if you're not getting the results you need, you probably ought to reevaluate what your, your personality, you probably ought to evaluate, reevaluate you and what's going on. Well, how do you keep getting fired? What is it about your personality that might impact it? Can, can people assess their own personality or do they need, you know, others to help them do that? I think, yeah, I mean, I think you need help from something, you know, whether it's an assessment or somebody else kind of giving you a little bit of advice. Yeah, what do you say, you know, maybe if you're getting fired from every job, it's like, you know, maybe that's the time to go to a friend or a coworker who you trust and say, what do you think this is about? You know, do you think there's something I could be doing better? Yeah, it's um, it's such a it's such a crazy science. And I look at businesses and. I sit there and I think they're doing a personality assessment. Probably some com- some company has come from the outside, pitched them on the idea that this is brilliant. We will get in and assess each of your jobs, each of your you know different uh, workplaces, and figure out the ideal personality type. But it, it seems like that's just a myth. There is there an ideal personality type for a job, or is there just one that's more? I mean. You could be an introvert and love sells. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, mean, so, I think. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think that I don't know if there's a personality type, but I think certainly qualities for certain jobs are great to have. You know, I think like flexibility, for example, is something that is probably valued in many jobs. But I don't know if there's a personality type because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, sometimes introverts excel. You know, like I know introverts who are journalists yeah. and they love that. Um, so it really just I think it just depends on who you are and how flexible you're willing to be. And if you can gain those specific qualities that are good for the job. Right. And in the end, um, I mean, I guess we we had a guest on yesterday that was just talking about the fact that uh, even in so- social or in uh, psycho- psychology and a lot of the research we're doing, we know it's always kind of been the nature nurture argument and because nurture was our, our nature was always harder historically to figure out genetics and mm. and DNA and everything that was more difficult than just figuring out some of the influences dad or mom may have directly we tend to overlook genetics but uh humans are complex and we're even more complex than our personality like you were saying my personality may be affected by the fact that you know someone in my family near and dear to me is dying mm. and that may adjust mm-hmm. me for a year Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Our personalities change. And, you know, I think that in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of um, environment versus genetics, I mean, like, as, you know, more of a psychologist and less, you know, on the um, biological side of things, I just focus on what I can measure. And we can we can measure things in people's environments and how they react to them. Right. Is what what should we be doing as as you've kind of learned going through this type of interview process. Are there things that we could do to better prepare for this this type of interview um, or any interview in order to kind of be more relaxed, be more who we are, and maybe somehow convey that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the hard thing to do is actually just to not be nervous. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I think like the more and more you do these things, 
you just realize that, I mean, these things are really low stakes because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you can do a fantastic job and feel like you really knocked it out of the park and then you don't get called back. It's just, it's so out of your control that I think the best thing to do is just to relax, to answer honestly, you know, with that, with that very strange interview that I had, I just, I just tried to answer honestly because, you know, when that, when they asked me if I was the best, I said, no, because I'm not the best. I mean, I don't really know what that question means, but I think to say anything else is doing a disservice to yourself um, just because you don't want to get a job. That's not a good fit for you and that you got um, dishonestly. Um, So I think, yeah, my best advice for that is just realize that it's really low stakes and it's out of your control and just try to be relaxed and yourself and, and, you know, of course, you know, you want to do all the normal things like do research on the company beforehand so you yeah. can get a sense for, yeah. I mean, that's great advice. You don't you don't want to lie and then get the job and then be like, what the heck? These guys are strange. <laughs> it's totally true. Absolutely. Dr. Yeah. Anna Hartley, we appreciate you and that great, uh, great work. And the article is in Psychology Today, Wrong Personality for the Job. If you just go to psychologytoday.com and um, look up Anna Hartley, great information for all of us. Stick... Uh, Stick to it. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue what other things we should be doing and could be doing to, um, you know, make sure that we understand ourselves and are more self-aware of our own lives. You know, we're the only person we've got. So everything depends on our ability to understand ourselves. Stick with us. We'll come back. Continue the discussion. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, jobs, they're hard to get, right? And for the last 10 years or so, there's a lot of pressure. The economy was falling apart. Everybody was closing doors. You needed to get a job. So then all of a sudden you go jump in on a job and you're thinking, ah, I'll get another one when life gets better. So be careful when you are uh, doing... When you're going in for your interview, you don't need to be psyched out, but you could. Just just be yourself. Like, I remember Terry's interview for this wonderful job. Wasn't that great? Remember you were sweating all over? Oh, was I had a jacket on. Oh, did you? Yeah. Were you wearing a jacket? It was kind of a cold day. I wore my leather jacket because I, I thought it was yeah. more of a power-type jacket. Walked in, sat down, and just sat there and comfortably explained to you. Man, it was kind of a mansplain situation. It was weird. I was just telling you all how to do your jobs. Uh-huh complimenting you, but it was kind of backhanded, too. And then I remember your jacket kept making squeaking noises. Well, it does. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I had a nice really tie weird. on. Did you? Yeah, I dressed up. I don't remember the tie. No. I just remember your upper lip shaking and your no, I wasn't, sweating profusely. I wasn't, like, intimidated. I figured I've done this before. You guys are the ones coming to me, so. But I do remember um, <laughs> that it was weird. <laughs> Because you would every once in a while like throw in a Marvel comic no, comment. No, I was careful not to mention anything of that. I didn't want to cause any problems. To infinity and beyond. No, I, I never, remember when I you never, said that. I never said that. That was awkward. Nope, nope. Those were good times. That years ago. It was a year ago. Like three years ago. One 
calendar year? One really long year. <laughs> that felt like three. <laughs> well, you're killing it. You're killing it now. Um, okay. This is one of the greatest moments, too, is when uh, we did hire Terry on, we had to get him a cubicle. Because today is cubicle oh, yeah. day. I've never had a desk of my own. I still don't. But I never had a place where I could go sit and yeah. do work. All the radio stations I worked at before, you just kind of worked in the studio and then left. Wow. But yeah. you, you have a nice little setup because you're not out with everyone else. You kind of have your own little office all the, suite. All the students here at uh, BYU Broadcasting sit in pods. Yeah. So it's like three desks sort of together. So three it's, peas. It's a cubicle without the walls mm-hmm. type of situation. And it's kind of loud. And yeah. Someone, hosts of shows, will just walk out into the middle of the the area of uh, that sort of office space and just start talking really loudly. Start about, yelling. Yeah, making fun of- Where's uh, my other, script? Yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm clear in the back. Yeah. Down a hallway- yeah. Back doors just around the corner so I can make quick uh, escapes if I need it. to. And you just go back there. And, and you're people... so far away, no one's going to walk there. No. I mean, unless it, you got to get your steps It in. is a deterrent. People go, wow, you're really far away. You've called me on like the desk phone that I, I never touched. I would kill to have your office location. I look over that phone and go, who's calling me? Mine is right at the intersection of the main hallways. Yeah. So I got people coming from everywhere. Yeah, they walk down the hallway and they're staring right at you as you're sitting at your desk. And they bring, it's like they'll bring a tour through mm. and my door will be shut and the whole tour will stop and everyone will look. Like peek in the window. Yeah, look at the monkey. What's he doing? <laughs> Hi. Why is he on his desk? That's weird. Yeah, why is his head, why is he asleep? <laughs> What's that mark on his forehead? Um, so today's cubicle day. So in order to celebrate cubicle day, we need to celebrate one of the greatest moments in movie history involving a cubicle. Hmm. The name of the movie, Office Space. This is a, an interaction between Bill Lumberg. Who was the boss. The boss. And Milton Wadhams, who is the guy that's been there forever that no one quite knows what he does. There's some sort of paperwork error as to why he hasn't yeah. been fired. He should have been fired like years ago. He doesn't have the right personality. I'm not sure if he gets paid. And uh, – he just keep they just kind of keep moving him all over the place because nobody knows exactly who he's responsible for. Hi, Milton. What's happening? I'm sorry. Um, I'm gonna have to ask you to go ahead and move your desk again. So, no. if you could go ahead and get it as far back against that wall as possible, that would be great. No. No, 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 no. Poor Milton has like no voice. At this point, they moved it from a cubicle into a storage closet. <laughs> and you go in there and there's pencils. People are walking in constantly to grab their, you know. Their stuff. Their, he has to like turn around, I think, at one point and hand some people some paper clips. And Poor Milton. They ask him to push his desk. But then they, by the end of the movie, he's in the basement. And they keep just pushing him up further and further. And then somebody yeah. takes his stapler. He has a red stapler. Does and he, that's when he comes unhinged. Yeah, you and don't he, take a stapler. He burns the office down. And he loves a good stapler. <laughs> that's why you got to watch out for those personalities, folks. Yes. You never. You it's got to be a good match. I, I went to a. Uh, I interviewed at a. What are they? They're an internet marketing company. Uh huh. And what they did, this company was they had a contract with a com- with several companies. One of them, Directv. And what they would do is they would set up. A altern- alternate directtv.com website. Really? So that when you'd search for directtv, you would get one. There's like one, two, three, 
and they would have two. One of them's the actual DirecTV. The other two, they would operate. Oh, it's a trick. And then so you basically in the search, you would end up at one of those three sites. DirecTV would either get you or this marketing firm would get you, and then they would funnel you back to DirecTV. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm like... Is that why every search that scammy? I do, I always end up at the same place? Maybe. It just seemed odd because you, when it comes down to it, you don't know who owns the website when it's even the name of the company.com. It could be anybody, and they're just working with that other company to make sure they get all referrals funneled back to them. That is a travesty. Yeah. So they're asking me all this stuff about social media, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I tweet. I put stuff on the web. <laughs> I, I done no tweeted idea. before. I've tweeted, <laughs> and I Facebook all the time. And that's probably what it sounded like too. I thought I sounded pretty convincing, but yeah, you could tell about halfway through the interviewer just put her feet up on the desk and so you worked in sports radio before. And I went, yeah. And he go, how was what was that like? I'm like, okay, now you're asking me stuff that has nothing okay. to do with it. Oh, I got it. Now I got the. Can job. I go now? Are we done? <laughs> Is that when you knew she gave up on you? Yeah. So I just started. You know, I had some time. I was, it's scary looking for a job, right? You were chasing. I mean, it's hard. You yeah. then all of a sudden. You could even feel like a failure. Like, why is this not happening? Why am I not getting yeah, a job? Family members were really concerned about it. What do they say? Like, my they mom would call me you. and she goes, I just want you to know that we love you. And I'm like, Mom, I'm okay. I don't need you to, you know, have an we intervention. Don't think you're a mess. Hopefully she's not listening mom? and gets mad. Uh, my wife was concerned. She'd yeah. call me every once in a while. I was trying to stay just, uh, I'm going to go learn something new. Right, I'm trying cool. to stay positive, trying to, to keep doing something every day. And now that I look back at it, I should have just played video games. But you were growing your beard out, and it did no. reach your belly button. I shaved every, no, I didn't shave. I just let it grow. Who cares? I shaved on Saturdays, yeah. once a week. Saturday's the special day. It's the day you get ready for Sunday. Well, basically, yeah. So you'd shave up <laughs> on Saturday, and then you'd just kind of get all hairy the rest of the week. Yeah. But then weren't you walk, also walking around your neighborhood in slippers muttering to yourself? No, I was not. Okay. I thought that was In fact, funny. most most of my neighbors had no idea. That's what I Because my hours are weird and I'm home in the middle of the afternoon anyways, yeah. norm, most days. <laughs> this is, By the way, this job, you get up very early to get here and you leave early and this is kind of a nice deal for you. Because you're not, you're not working as much and you get a ton of time with your little fella. Right. To, That's a bonus. To beat him up with a sponge with I, a... A Light pool. Saber. It's a pool noodle. Okay, sure. You make it sound like it's so much more than no, what no, no, it no. is. Tell the uh, welfare authorities, the child welfare authorities, that <laughs> you don't need to defend anything to me. So the 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 personality in a workplace is very important. Super important. If you you like you talked about, you hire somebody and then they're just uh, yeah. they're annoying. What do you do? You fire them. Well, you can try to find a reason, I guess. Some but. people can't. Sometimes you can't fire people. No. I mean, there are people that could exist in an organization for 20 years simply because nobody could fire them. As I found out in, like, state government offices, yeah. those types, they're able to – They're just. it's a hard process to get someone out of a company right. because there's been lawsuits and you want to make sure you have everything covered and there's documentation. And then somewhere along the line, somebody doesn't – document something so you got to start over the start process over, do it again it could, I, I i shared a story in here it said it would take up to six months in most federal government offices to separate an employee to fire somebody to get physically get them so they're not working in on the payroll well, and some employees wouldn't leave so you would think well i'll just be obnoxious or do something so annoying they'll have to leave but they don't they have appeals processes so it just makes it go longer and longer and there's there's like a point where it's like this person can't function here yeah it's hard, too, when you're counting down and you know that I've only got 13 more years till <laughs> my pension I'm kicks fully in, right? vested yeah. and 
that's the scary thing when you're counting down and your years are that far away. Yeah, maybe. And then there's private companies where they just walk in the door and say, you're fired. You're fired. Sorry. Which is what happened to me. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of a slap in the face, too. You're like, whoa, hey, what, what happened? I thought I just, okay. Did they hear about the lightsaber thing? Oh, they probably thought that was funny. Oh, I thought and that was way before that. Uh, that's why they The lightsaber thing really kicked in when I was unemployed. Oh, yeah, because you had more time. I had that and more aggression. More aggression. <laughs> Daddy's getting his aggression out playing lightsaber. Come here. Let's get all this <laughs> anger here, out. Son. Oh, that's fun. Good times. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Yes. Uh, you've heard of a grammar Nazi? I have. Uh, do you know any? I live with one, sort of. Your son? My wife. Okay. Uh New research out. So if you know a grammar Nazi, pay attention. This story is critically important. Grammar Nazi, you know, someone who constantly points out your typos, your grammatical errors, the things that they don't like Mm -hmm. that you're saying. Um, According to a latest study, um, these type of people are generally less open and more likely to judge you for your mistakes, more negatively uh, than anyone else. And so the research shows we don't like – these people, and on average, these people aren't seen positively. They're not likable. It seems interesting, like, duh. You're constantly correcting people. Mm-hmm. That's not something, an attribute people are going to think, that's positive, I no, like that. I'm just trying to help you. I need that in my daily life. Your grammar is horrible. The study was carried out by researchers at the University of Michigan, and it is the first to show that an individual's personality traits can actually determine how one reacts to typos and grammatical errors. They found that extroverted people are much more likely to overlook typos and grammatical errors, whereas introverted people were more likely to judge the person who make such errors more negatively because of them. Hmm. These people are... They might just be introverted, and they go in their mind, and they go to their happy place, and they're like, oh, I, there's a correction. I could, I could share my insight and help fix this person's horrible grammar. And I have skills to share. Let me show you. So this may be defining the battle between the, um, the introvert and the extrovert. The introvert right. is silently critiquing, and the extrovert is just spewing – Language errors. <laughs> well, there comes a point where you're, if you're trained to look for errors and you see them and you can point them out and you can see something's misspelled, it annoys people. Yeah. So things must be fixed. No. You know, so they want to, to correct and help other people yeah. get to that point no, in life no. where they can fix these problems. No, no, just shush. They're helping. Keep it in. Keep it in. You're an introvert. Don't say anything. I'm an introvert. Nobody believes that. But I am. I right. I don't critique people's grammar, though. As you're standing in front of mass crowds giving public speeches several times a month. Mm-hmm. And on the radio. And then I sit alone in my car in heaven. Just decompress? Listening to Barry Manilow. <sighs> well, Barry's good. Life is good. Life is good. Hey, uh, we'll take a break. Uh, come back and continue um, our discussions, folks. When it comes down to it... Uh, We all got to get better, right? The goal of the show is to help you see the good in the world, learn the latest and greatest research, and do something with it. Stick with us. We'll have fun. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, we we sit on this uh, great big ball of mud flying through space, spinning like crazy. And yet, uh, and, and, you know, we can be totally caught up in our jobs. You know what it feels like to be worried about the three meetings you have this morning on the way to work. Plus, you got a ball game at night. You don't know how you're going to get there because uh, and your wife's got that meeting tonight. And so at times are, it's complicated. It's hard. And yet, uh, and we're supposed to now take time and set it aside to figure out who we are, our personality. We're supposed to know what we're like. I'm supposed to go in and figure out if I'm an introvert or an extrovert and still get to work and get to that meeting and read that report before the meeting. Or I could read it at night, but that's the time I'm supposed to be with my kids. So we are in this tangled world where we have so many conflicted demands on us and um, conflicting demands on us that we want to be closer to our family, and yet we are supposed to finish that report. We want to, you know, succeed and excel in our job, except so-and-so is always uh, needing my advice at work. And it's not my job to give so-and-so the advice. It's enough to drive you crazy, isn't it? Do you ever just feel like, I can't do this anymore? I am, I'm losing it. I mean, I think that's the universal issue. Carl Jung once said, that which is most personal is most universal. So if you feel stressed out, completely done, you're normal. And maybe one of the things we all could do is just figure out um, some, I don't know what you call it, a, a mantra, but really more just some perspective. What's the default perspective that helps you get back to what you need to do and who you really are? Just the simple idea that, you know what, life is more important than any of this. It's, uh, it's more important than the stress I'm feeling and tomorrow is another day. It's going to get better if we just can get through right now. Don't spend your entire day worrying about tomorrow or even yesterday. Maybe we need to find a way in the moment to get centered and figure out what you are about. So if I asked you, if I brought a a microphone, came right up to you and put the microphone in your face and asked you, "What what is it that you are really about on this earth? What would your answer be? If you are here to become the best possible person you can be, you know, with uh, morals and and values and love, if that's what you're supposed to be, you need to know that. If you don't have an answer to the question, why are you here on this earth and what is the most important thing you want to become, then you're just going to keep spinning and everything's going to get harder. And saying no will be harder because everyone else will be pushing for their yeses to take place. We all have to take some time and figure out why are we here and what are we really doing? So what is your answer to that? If you don't have one, spend some time today figuring that out. Nietzsche said there's a great – it's easy to say yes. It's easy to say no when there's a deeper yes burning inside. It's easier to say no to people when you know what your yeses are. And if you don't know what your life is about and what your world is about and why you are here and what matters most, then you're going to end up getting out of integrity. And that hurts. So just today, start figuring out the answer to that question. What is the – what is your purpose? 
What is it that if you're not here to deliver, the rest of us lose out on? Or your family, your friends, your, your people around you would actually lose. Interesting stuff. A little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Trying to broaden your mind as we uh, help you find the good in the world. <laughs> 